Kai Havertz opens his Premier League account with the Gunners and feels the love from the travelling support. We'll reflect on a comfortable afternoon for Mikel Arteta's side, discuss City dropping points and touch on the VAR controversy that plagues the English top flight almost weekly. All of that to come on this edition of the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. I'm Martin Tyler and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hey everybody, how's it going? Happy Sunday. Welcome back along to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of, of course, the 90 Min football family as ever. I'm your host, Harry Simeon. And on this edition, we're going to look back on Arsenal's comfortable victory down on the South Coast. We're also, of course, uh, going to uh, reflect on Manchester City dropping points. We'll also talk about some of that VAR controversy at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium as well. We've got lots and lots to get into. Uh, apologies that we sort of started a stream yesterday, really kind of shortly after the full-time whistle, but we couldn't get it to work properly. It was just that the connection, the internet connection uh, down at the Vitality Stadium was not good enough, which is why you may have seen something pop up, have gone to have clicked on it, and then obviously it, it turned out to, to be nothing. And it's because we had to delete the post and go back again. But as I say, the internet connection just wasn't good enough, wasn't strong enough. And I figured rather than sort of doing a... Uh, really poor episode where I'm constantly worrying about that. We just save it uh, for today. So really, really looking forward to getting back into this one. It was a great day at the office for the Gunners. I really enjoyed my trip down to the South Coast. Uh, as you can see, not in the studio, not in the man cave uh, today, because um, as I've mentioned to you guys over the past few days, I've, I'm on dad duty this weekend. My wife uh, has gone away for a hen party. And um, as a result of that, I'm responsible for the two little ones. So what I've done today is come uh, to the original Casa de Simu uh, so that um, the family can uh, take care of the little ones downstairs while I'm here podcasting. Um, so yeah, contingency plan was well in place and is now being executed. Um, hope you're all good. Let's say a few hellos to some of you joining us in the live chat. Big hello to Derek, who says, G'day from Australia. Good game. Happy to have scored four goals, but feel it was a great opportunity to have scored more. Uh, not to be too greedy, but feel this was our chance to do some real damage. Derek goes on to say, after all, at the end of the season, goal difference may make a difference. Um, yeah, it, it might. You know, it might. Um, big hello to Mr. T, who says, looking forward to this. We'll take my Swedish Sunday to the next level. What is a Swedish Sunday? Let me know. What does a Swedish Sunday consist of? Andy Jackson says, I'll pass on this one, H, as Havertz scoring a charity penalty to mark his first Premier League goal in 18 games doesn't excite me at all. The question is, uh, would he have been gifted one if it was nil-nil on 90 minutes? I can guarantee that people like Andy would have been the first to go crazy if Kai Havertz had missed that penalty kick. So then you can't, you know, turn it around and say, well, it was of no value and it was of no significance because I can guarantee people like yourself would have been up in arms had Kai Havertz stepped up and missed that spot kick, but he didn't. He dispatched it brilliantly. Um, Tom says, uh, hi, Harry and chat. Nice to be one of the rare uh, drama free games of the weekend. Yep, for sure. Uh, big hello to the Canterbury Guno says, afternoon, Harry and chat. Hope you're well. Been dreaming all day of our number eight. Yes, that's a great chant as well, isn't it? It's a great chant. Um, we've got some questions as well. There's one here from Mark, which I'll just favourite and we'll come back to that a little bit later on in the programme. 
hold fire on the questions and we'll do those a little bit later on. Uh, Damien says, can you start the show with the Havertz song? The chant was amazing. I, I figured I'd rather play you the video than sit there chanting it myself. Um, you know, I do tend to do that from time to time when I get a bit excited, but I figured uh, I'd leave it this time around. Uh, big hello to everybody else as well joining us in the live chat. Um, as I say, hope you're all well and enjoying your Sunday. Always good, isn't it, a Sunday when Arsenal aren't in action after they've already been in action and already got the points on the board. The only criticism I have of this particular Sunday is that there's no four o'clock game, 4.30 game for us to sit and enjoy. And I've looked at the fixtures around Europe to try and find something to fill my football void with a little bit later on in the day. And even that is proving a little bit difficult today. I think I'll do Atalanta Juve maybe at five o'clock, but yeah, um, I guess it's a good thing in a way. We can just switch off a little bit and um, get prepared for what is um, a massive, massive week for the Gunners. Trips to Lons uh, and then the return from there uh, and getting back to London Colney to prepare ahead of what could be a massive game against Manchester City next weekend. So, yeah, um, just wanted to give the Arsenal fans as well a big shout out that made the trip down to the South Coast yesterday um, amidst the chaos that is caused by uh, train strikes. Um, we always seem to get train strikes, don't we? Um, when it comes to away games, it's, it's like they're always married up with away games, which is really, really annoying. And I know that a lot of people drove down to Bournemouth yesterday. I did that myself. Um, and it wasn't the easiest of drives yesterday. I found a lot of traffic just A, getting out of London because of the, obviously, the transport issues. And then as I got closer and closer to Bournemouth, there was like a kind of bottleneck of traffic. Um, luckily, I left with plenty of time. I had to be on air for one o'clock and I got into the stadium and into my position at something like 12.45. So even having left really, really early, I cut it really, really fine. Thankfully, the journey back was much, much better. And I hope it was uh, for everybody as well. Right. Uh, let's start breaking um, this game down. Uh, there's lots and lots uh, to talk about, lots of positives to talk about. Uh, we're going to discuss it incident by incident. We're going to discuss some individual performances as well. Um, and uh, yeah, let's uh, let's get into it. Bournemouth nil, Arsenal four was the result. Okay, so um, the start to the game. Well, I actually thought that Bournemouth started in the first few minutes quite well with quite a lot of purpose, with quite a high intensity. They were trying to hurt us down their right-hand side in particular, I thought, with Max Aarons combining with Tavernier. I thought those two looked quite a threat. And obviously, we know that Zinchenko likes to drift into that midfield position, which can at times leave a real heavy workload on Gabriel as the left centre-back. You often see him have to shift across probably a lot more than he'd like to and operate in spaces that he probably isn't totally 100% confident in. And that's why I keep giving him high praise, because I feel like that goes under the radar. The fact that Gabriel is not just playing as a centre-back like Saliba is, for example, on the right side. He is often having to fill in the spaces left by Zinchenko, but also fulfil his duties in the heart of the defence and make sure that he's close enough to Saliba in certain situations as well. So Gabriel, again, brilliant performance from him. Um, I really, really enjoyed uh, his display and I thought he was a big part of us not letting Bournemouth really make too much out of what was a decent five to ten minute spell at the beginning of the game. 
Then Arsenal started to, to get into it, started to get a little bit more comfortable, started stroking the ball around. And you felt at that point that there was only ever really going to be one outcome. Did take the Gunners until 17 minutes, though, to find the breakthrough. It was a lovely um, delivery in towards the far post area from Martin Odegaard, who was stationed pretty much on the corner of the box. Jesus's header was back across the goal. There was a, a huge slice of fortune, I thought, with the way that it came off the post. Because normally when you hit the post from that angle, it's normally the outside of the post. And normally the ball goes out of play. But this time it hits the post and it drops right on the edge of the six-yard box. And there was Bukayo Saka, who was a major, major doubt going into this game. We'll talk about the team news in a minute. I probably should have done that first. But, you know, Saka's developed this instinct and this ability to snuff out danger and to sense out sense when the ball might fall and where it might fall and get himself into those positions. And, you know, he's he's become so much more than just a winger. He's a, a devastating forward now. And I guess the player that you'd probably want to compare yourself to if that was your aspiration to become that kind of right-sided forward who's potent in front of goal, who pops into slightly more central positions at times and makes the most of that. You'd want to compare yourself to somebody like Mo Salah, wouldn't you? And to have that instinct to know that once Odegaard puts that in towards the far post area, that something may come and to not kind of stay wide as he was initially stationed and actually follow it in and make sure that you're in a position to capitalise on any bit of fortune, any mistake, etc., is again another sign of his development as a player and as a forward rather than just as a winger. So great to see him following that up. It was the easiest to finish as he literally just nodded the ball into the back of the net. And once Arsenal got the goal, all that maybe nerve, nervousness, anxiety that you maybe feel going into any Premier League game because of how important it is and, and we know it is to, to keep up with Manchester City and all the rest of it, for me, just completely evaporated and disappeared at that point. I felt there was only going to be one winner and that's what proved to be the case. It was a comfortable victory in the end. So the first goal is always a really, really important one. Um, well worked by Arsenal. Um, as I mentioned, a, a big slice of fortune, I thought, in in the, the angle that the ball hit the post and where it landed and all the rest of it. But you've got to be good enough to take that opportunity. You've got to be in the right position to capitalise on something like that. And Bukayo Saka was. Just winding it back a little bit, because I should have done this first, um, the team news. Now, we'd gone into the weekend, hadn't we, um, sort of really concerned about who was going to play. Uh, we'd gone into the weekend not sure who was fit, who was not fit. Mikel Arteta, very um, unclear, you felt, in his pre-match press conference. And I actually spoke to someone yesterday from the club who told me that, listen, this is not Mikel Arteta trying to play games. This is not Mikel Arteta trying to, you know, catch people out, you know, get the journalists um, scrambling around trying to figure out what the team's going to be. It, it, it isn't that for Mikel Arteta. It's not a game to him. He genuinely loves this idea of keeping people guessing. It's a big, big thing for him. He, he's really got to be in his bonnet about predictability and he wants to do whatever he can to try and eradicate that predictability or to try and limit that predictability as far as possible. You know, there are players like Declan Rice that are so good that you know they're going to play. The same with William Saliba and the likes. But what he wants to do is keep people guessing as much as he possibly can. And that was the reason for um, being so unclear in his press conference. I think he had a pretty good idea on Friday of who was available, who was not. He did tell us in the radio room after the game that Declan Rice was one that was, you know, really touch and go. He was probably the last minute 
addition out of the few that were on the um, on the list. There was still no Gabriel Martinelli, which obviously is a, a negative, but hopefully he'll be back sooner rather than later. But the team that started then was Raya in goal, White, Saliba, Gabriel, Zinchenko, Odegaard, Rice and Havertz with Saka and Ketia and Gabriel Jesus. So there was only one change from the North London derby side, and that was Fabio Vieira coming out who again was an injury doubt, but was fit enough to play some role on the bench and play some role later on in the game. And uh, and Kai Havertz came back into the side. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that and we'll talk about a few performances uh, in a little while. Um, I do want to get into certain players' performances, but let's take it back to where I was. Uh, Saka's goal on 17 minutes, breaking the deadlock. The rest of the first half, it felt like Arsenal were cruising in second gear. It felt like Bournemouth... You know, we're kind of knocking at the door a little bit, but not in terms of clear-cut chance creation, just in terms of territory, being able to get themselves higher up the pitch and all the rest of it. You always feel like there is greater danger, I think, when you're away from home because the crowd gets up in anticipation and the situation that on your home patch would never feel threatening in the slightest is amplified by the roar of the crowd and all the rest of it. Um, but the truth is, you know, barring a couple of good blocks, um, one... Uh, from Gabriel. There was a good sliding challenge from William Saliba as well. Bournemouth didn't test David Raya in any real capacity. There were a few corners uh, consecutively on the right-hand side that Tavernier delivered in. But again, Arsenal dealing with those really, really well at the near post. Kai Havertz making a couple of clearances. Gabriel involved too. Um, so, you know, Arsenal coped with Bournemouth's threat really, really well um, up until sort of the half-time point. And then right on the stroke of half-time, Arsenal win themselves a penalty kick. And that ultimately killed Bournemouth off, didn't it? Just before the break. Once again, going back to the predictability point, Mikel Arteta had Bukayo Saka standing over the, the ball, um, standing with the ball under his arm on the penalty spot. And just before the penalty was due to be taken, he threw it over to Martin Odegaard, who stepped up and, uh, and dispatched the penalty brilliantly. And again, you know, this is another example of Mikel Arteta trying to gain those really, really small advantages. You know, keep them guessing. How many teams have two penalty takers? How many teams have two goalkeepers that the manager calls number ones? You can see what he's trying to do, right? You can understand the overall idea here, which is to make Arsenal as unpredictable as he possibly can. I'm just going to adjust my position a little bit. It's getting a little bit uncomfortable here. Um, but yeah, that's a big, big deal for Mikel Arteta. And he's he's doing his best, um, you know, to, to make that happen. Um and to keep people guessing, ultimately. So Odegaard scores the penalty kick. And, and at 2-0 at halftime, you think, well, you know, we're going to cruise to victory here. There shouldn't be um, any issues. There shouldn't be any problems. You know, as long as we stay concentrated, we'll be fine. And obviously, we had in the back of our minds that a lot of these players were touch and go in terms of their fitness. We had it in the back of our minds that not all of them would have 90 minutes in the tank. Obviously, we have it in the back of our minds that we travel away in the UEFA Champions League on Tuesday. And of course, that we face Manchester City next weekend. So, you know, I think once we got to 2-0, I think there would have been a lot of people watching the game and going, if we can make a couple of changes here, it'll be great. And if we can rest a few of the key players. But look, 2-0 is not a safe scoreline in the Premier League, as we found out. And that's why it was even more important that when Arsenal were awarded a second penalty of the afternoon on 53 minutes, or just before that, Arsenal took care of it. Arsenal dispatched it and Arsenal essentially wrapped up the points. Just on the two penalty decisions, um, you can have no arguments about either of them. They weren't even remotely controversial. Um, the first one was a challenge from Max Ahrens 
uh, on Eddie and Ketia, who did really, really well to get there and just get a toe on the ball ahead of the defender. Not sure that Eddie and Ketia would have scored from that angle. Um, but, you know, just getting that touch on the ball drew, drew the foul and therefore Arsenal win the penalty that Odegaard dispatches. And then the second one um, was Odegaard under a challenge from Ryan Christie, who, you know, just made an attacking player's challenge, essentially. Um, and then I thought one of the most significant moments of the game unfolded because, again, you know, Arsenal playing the whole guessing game, who's going to take the penalty? You felt like it was probably going to be Bukayo Saka this time. He was standing there with the ball, but I'm always of the opinion that you shouldn't take more than one penalty in a game. Um, you know, it can give the goalkeeper an advantage in terms of the mind games, uh, having known or, or knowing what you've done already and all the rest of it. I know they do their studying and they'll check all that out in advance, but I don't like the idea of the same player taking two penalties in a game. So I expected Bukayo Saka to take that. There was a clear conversation um, happening between um, Gabriel Jesus and Martin Odegaard on the pitch. I could see it in front of me and I tweeted it straight away. Um, those two were in conversation about something with regards to this penalty kick. Martin Odegaard then jogged over to Bukayo Saka, who was standing on the spot, whispered something in his ear. Clearly, those guys between them had taken the decision that actually the man who needs this most, the man who would benefit the most from converting this penalty kick within the group, given some of the noise around him, was Kai Havertz. Upstepped Kai Havertz. He put the ball down um, on the spot. Runs up, little stutter, little bit of composure, sends the keeper the wrong way and just strokes it uh, into the bottom left-hand corner. Does that, does the way he finished that penalty almost disprove the idea that he's shot of confidence? Does the way that he stepped up and, and tucked that ball away show that actually it is just maybe his style, it is just maybe his demeanour that is leading everybody to believe that he's got no confidence? Because that wasn't a penalty of somebody that's, shot of confidence. That was the penalty of someone who really trusts in his ability um, and remained really, really composed. Um, I'll play you uh, sort of the reaction to Kai Havertz post-match again uh, in a little bit, but I just want to share with you uh, a response that I got from Mikel Arteta when I spoke to him after the game about whose idea it was to let Kai Havertz have the penalty. Was it something that was pre-planned? Was it something that was discussed in the dressing room? Here's what Mikel had to say in response to my question. Mikel, um, the players decided to give uh, Kai Havertz the opportunity to score from the penalty spot. Whose decision was that? Was that something pre-planned or was it the players on the pitch coming to that decision? No, totally down to the players. What Bukai has done today, what the team has done today to recognise that situation that they, externally, not internally, but externally, there are some question marks around him to show that level of empathy towards um, a teammate, a player, and, and that level of trust as well to say, OK, score and win us the game and, and the game is over, it's incredible. So as a manager, I'm so proud that we have generated and created a culture when they can take that accountability and leadership to make that decision and put the human side on the line when it's necessary because that's going to mean the world to him. And especially as well our fans, that they were incredible again towards him and um, hopefully this is a turning point. Mikel Arteta equally as impressed by the actions of his players. I believe him as well when he says that it wasn't premeditated, it wasn't pre-planned, it was something that the players took on themselves. Again, you know, I don't know exactly who said what and at what point, but, you know, from what I could see, it looked like Martin Odegaard was the instigator in this. 
And again, that highlights his brilliant leadership qualities. We always talk about, you know, the the fight, the the sort of the shouting, the screaming, all the rest of it, the things that we traditionally came to expect from captains. But empathy is a big thing uh, in the modern day. And also, based on Mikel Arteta's comments there, you, you understand, don't you, that um, clearly this was something that the players were aware of. Now, you can say as a footballer and as a manager that you don't read the papers and that you're not too into what people are saying and you don't pay uh, too much attention to it. But Mikel Arteta referenced external questions being asked of Kai Havertz. And therefore, that indicates that the players are aware of it and that it is a problem and that the club are aware of it. Now, you've got to manage that as a manager, but you've got to manage that as a squad as well. And to recognise that and then put your player in a position where he could potentially, um, you know, silence people at least for a little bit. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, it is some weight off of Kai Havertz's shoulders, but he's got to follow it up now with encouraging performance. And hopefully this can be the start. But what it made me think when I kind of listened to that answer and, and my initial thought at the point of sort of recording that was, do you know what? Like, actually, if that noise is coming exter from externally, if that noise is coming from every angle, you know, every pundit and their dog is talking about whether Kai Havertz has come in and upset the balance or actually brought something to the team. Do we need to be having that conversation every single week as Arsenal fans? Do we need to continue fueling that narrative? And the answer is probably no. And I've been guilty of this as well because I've spoken about it on multiple occasions. But until there's like a massive issue, I don't think we need to make that big a deal of it. So, for example, um, if Kai Havertz has an absolute stinker, which, uh, you know, yes, he's not been amazing yet, but I can't think of too many times where he was really bad that it warranted a, a massive discussion around it. But we talk about it because it is what's different about the team from last season. We talk about it because it is a change. But actually, perhaps we're a little bit guilty as fans of fueling this narrative because we constantly speak about it. So I'm going to do my best now to just judge Kai Havertz's performances the same way I judge everybody else's, not put them under the microscope um, too much and not really uh, focus too much on it unless it's a problem or there's some praise to give. Because if he's giving performances that are at a good enough level, then you know, it's, there's not really anything major to be discussing or to be concerned by. Um, as I showed you guys right at the top of the stream as well, um, I posted a video on Twitter. It's probably the best performing video I've ever put on Twitter, by the way. I can't believe how many people reacted to it and engaged to it. Um, but at the full-time whistle, all the focus was on Kai Havertz. And that goes to show that it isn't always, um, you know, the same between those fans that are in attendance and those nameless accounts that you get on social media. And I'm not saying everybody that doesn't go or only follows Arsenal or, or mainly follows Arsenal via sort of online interactions is like this. But there is that hyperbole around players like Kai Havertz. There is those narratives being driven by a lot of the time faceless accounts and people chasing clout. But the people that were in attendance there, the ones that made the trip from, this, uh, from North London down to the South Coast yesterday were 100% behind Kai Havertz. Um, yesterday and you really felt that not just um, at the final whistle but in the game as well once that goal went in I think they chanted um, the chant that I'm about to play you for 
maybe eight or nine minutes consecutively without stopping. feels like Bournemouth is somewhere that we tend to go and create great chance as well. Remember the Saliba one from last season. But here's another look at how the away fans uh, responded to Kai Havertz as he made his way over uh, to that far side to applaud them at the final whistle. <laughs> I could literally watch that and listen to that all day, um, literally. Um, then, of course, on 93 minutes um, after Mikel Arteta had made uh, some changes and all the rest of it, um, Ben White popped up with a brilliant header to cap it off uh, and, and finish uh, the game at 4-0. Sort of overriding thoughts on the performance in general on the whole. I thought Arsenal were totally in control without ever really having to exert themselves it was a confidence boost. It wasn't too physically taxing, which is exactly what you want, as we said, ahead of a week like this. Um, a massive boost that all of the players over whom there was doubt, with the exception of Gabriel Martinelli, featured in some capacity. Um, we talked a little bit about Mikel Arteta wanting to keep people guessing. Another interesting bit was uh, Andoni Iraiola's uh, press conference after the game, where he was full of praise for the Arsenal. Look, we know this team inside out. We know what they're good at. We know what they're bad at. We know what they can develop at and we know where we feel, you know, they're at a certain level already in, in particular areas and where we're happy with that. But to hear Andoni Raiola talk about Arsenal's um, capacity off of the ball um, was a real reminder of the work that they've done as a team and, and Mikel Arteta's coaching. He talked about the press. He talked about the fact that we're great in duels. He talked about the fact that we're really good at defending second balls and all of those things. And um, sometimes, as I say, it's nice to hear it, isn't it, from another manager. One talking point from me um, with regards to the team selection is the same talking point that I brought up after the North London derby, because I think, for me, this is one that I, I don't quite agree with Mikel Arteta on, I have to say. And that is Gabriel Jesus being pushed out into a wide position with Eddie Nketiah playing through the middle. If you had a top, top, top centre forward, I wouldn't mind Gabriel Jesus playing in a wider position. But Eddie Nketiah is a good centre forward, but he's not a top, top centre forward. And I know this maybe sounds a little bit harsh because he got the um, the penalty uh, and all the rest of it and he, he worked tirelessly and all the rest of it. But I just don't feel like he is at that level where it warrants moving Gabriel Jesus out of position, out of a position in which he causes chaos, links up the play brilliantly. Eddie doesn't link up the play as well as Jesus does. And I feel like Jesus becomes a bit of a bit part player um, when we're in a situation where, where he's playing on the flank. And, you know, he's played on the right flank before and he's looked okay in other teams. But on the left side, I don't know, he, he, to me, he doesn't look quite as effective. So that was my one issue with the team selection. Um, I, I probably would have personally put Gabriel Jesus through the middle and played Reese Nelson from the left. I thought Reese Nelson did enough on Wednesday night uh, down at Brentford to deserve a starting place and was probably unlucky, actually, to miss out on the starting eleven. Um, but yeah, that was just a, a thought there from me. Um, 
I've kind of touched all the bases that I want to on this game. We're going to talk a little bit about Manchester City dropping points. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about the VAR controversy uh, down at Spurs as well. And we'll take a few of your questions uh, right towards the end of the show. We're going to take a really short pause and then we will be back. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of the 90-min football family, of course. Um, right, let's uh, let's talk about Manchester City dropping points at Wolves yesterday. I have to say I didn't see that coming. When they went 1-0 down, um, I was asked on the radio if I was... Uh, if I was uh, excited about that, excited about the prospect of them dropping points. And I remember my response being something along the lines of, we've been down this road many times, Manchester City going behind or not performing too well in the first half and then clicking into gear and going and blitzing a team. So even when Wolves were 1-0 up, I wasn't massively confident um, that they were going to take anything from the game, let alone all three points. Then Manchester City equalised quite early on in the second half. And you're thinking, here we go. Um, there's plenty of time now. They're going to go on and win it. And I must say, when I got the pop-up to say that um, that Huang had scored for Wolves, I was in shock. And I thought, surely they're not going to hold on. But they did. And what a significant result that could be this early on in the season. Um, somebody that was sitting next to me at the game yesterday that was reporting um, for BBC Final Score, uh, great, uh, great journal, great reporter said, is this because of the de-rogerification of Manchester City? I would have loved to have claimed that line, but it wouldn't have been right for me to do so because it's that good. Um, maybe it is. The de-rogerification of Manchester City leaves them significantly weaker, doesn't it? Um, it leaves them in a position where they are that bit more vulnerable. And we saw that yesterday. Um, obviously, they come to Emirates Stadium next Sunday um, and hopefully, you know, we can expose that again if it's still a thing. I don't expect Manchester City ever really to be in a lull for too long. But they got knocked out of the Carabao Cup in midweek. They were beating at Wolves at the weekend. You know, maybe it's a good time to face them or are they going to come at us like a wounded animal? I don't know. It can work both ways, can't it? But the fact that they lost and we won, what that does for me is take a little bit of pressure off of us going into that big game next weekend because we no longer have to win it to stay within touching distance. We can now draw it. You know, if you get to the latter stages, you, you can't feel that breakthrough coming. You don't need to take unnecessary risks. Take the point, um, keep within touching distance and hope that other people can take points off Manchester City along the way. Um, so look, not the be all and end all, not a result that we're going to be jumping up and down about at this early stage in the season, but it's just a, a sign that there is a, a chink in their armour, that they aren't this formidable machine that never loses, um, that we've kind of built them up to be for good reason, obviously. Uh, but yeah, um, that was a real, real boost as well. So good day in that Arsenal won and won very, very comfortable. A good day in that they're no longer going to be uh, invincibles or have no chance of achieving that this season. And they're the only club in the Premier League that you feel have what it takes to do that. Um, and look, they, they've fallen, what, seven games in, which is all also great. And those members of the 0304 Arsenal squad will be delighted at that for sure. Um, but yeah, as I say, um, a good result. And of course, Man United uh, being embarrassed at home by Crystal Palace is always great as well. Turns out that if you beat Palace's reserves in the Carabao Cup, it doesn't by default mean that you're back. So uh, Eric Ten Hag with some work to do there. Long may he stay in the job, by the way. Um, I do want to touch on the VAR controversy at Spurs. Um, 
I was listening to it on the radio as I was driving back home and, you know, just listening to the reaction there gave me a real sense and an indication of the injustice or the level of injustice um, that, you know, people felt was was on show there. Um, you know, Spurs were incredibly fortunate, A, with decisions and B, to get the own goal that they did. You know, nine times out of 10, Joel Matip clears that with his left foot. On that occasion, it went into the, the roof of the net and it just kind of shows you what they're kind of going through at the moment with Ange Postacoglu, the buzz, the bounce, all the rest of it. A bit of fortune along the way, but um, I don't think you can begrudge them that too much. Obviously, I'd prefer they didn't win, but yeah, is what it is. But the big talking point, obviously, coming away from that game um, was a, a number of decisions. Now, with the red cards, I don't think they're that controversial. So I, I think Curtis Jones deserved to be sent off. I thought that was a really dangerous challenge. And I thought that was the correct call. As for the second one, Jota, I think the second foul he makes or the second challenge he makes is a stupid challenge to make when you're on a yellow card. So he needs to bear some responsibility for that. I don't think he deliberately trips the Tottenham player in what led to his first yellow card. But, you know, they're breaking away and you can understand why in real time the referee's given that. So if I were a Liverpool fan, I don't think I'd be going too big on the red card chat. But when it comes to the offside thing, that was absolutely bonkers, absolutely wild. You know, the level of incompetence that we are seeing is astonishing. Um, the PGMOL's statement was embarrassing. It's as embarrassing as, as transparent as it is. You know, they're trying to be transparent and I get that. And in a weird way, I think Howard Webb's actually trying to do the right things, but it's just not acceptable at this level of football. Um, apologies mean nothing. You can knock on Jurgen Klopp's door and say, sorry, mate, we got it wrong, but it doesn't give him the points back. And, you know, for a club that, you know, could well be up there come the end of the season with regards to the title, um, would definitely be up there, in my opinion, in the Champions League race. You know, that could be a really, really significant moment. Like I, I thought back to how we felt and how I felt after we were robbed against Brentford at Emirates Stadium last season because we knew that we were in a title race and then to lose those points were, were massive. Um, so I can only imagine that, you know, Liverpool fans and, and Jurgen Klopp and the rest of them are feeling terrible about this. And, and they have every right to because it's a really, really shocking decision. But, you know, we always talk about the laws of the game and we talk about um, the lines. Some people don't like the lines. They complain that maybe the lines aren't accurate enough. I think most of the time the lines are accurate enough. It's only the ones where you're talking about millimetres that there's a question mark over that. You could talk about the technology, the introduction of technology, all of those things. But this is nothing to do with any of that. This is just incompetence, pure and simple incompetence people forgetting to follow the right processes, people not doing their due diligence. I'm not defending the referees or the officials in any way, shape or form. But what I don't think is helpful is when you've got people moaning about how long the decisions take all the time. Because if referees and officials don't feel under pressure to rush, then they're more likely to come to the correct call and they're more likely to avoid errors like this one. So the PGMOL's explanation was that um, the VAR assumed that the decision was um, for the goal to stand, that the on-pitch decision was for the goal to stand. That's what he thought was initially given. And so when he said check complete, actually the the, the, the referee and the, and the guys uh, on the pitch took that as, yep, we've ruled out the goal. You've said check complete and it's okay, so we must be correct. Let's move on with it. 
Um, that is a shocking thing. And, and also as well, like surely within a minute, even less than that, the VARs then realized, can, can he not radio across and say, oh, hold on a minute, guys. I thought you were, you were giving the goal, blah, blah, blah. Like, let, let's fix this. Let's sort this out. I think people would have had so much more respect, even if the play had restarted, if they'd gone back and fixed it. You know, it didn't need to be more than a minute. It didn't need to be more than 30 seconds because you could see with the naked eye that Diaz uh, was onside. That is as bad a decision as I've seen. And, you know, you got to give credit um, to, to Diaz because that was a wonderful finish. And he must feel like, you know, like, I was going to use a swear word there, but he must feel awful, um, you know, with the fact that he's been robbed of that goal. And Liverpool must feel awful as well. But this keeps happening. This keeps coming up. The incompetence keeps rearing its ugly head. And unfortunately, in what's supposed to be the best league in the world, you can't allow this to stand. Um, they've stood down, uh, the the two that were in the VAR room, uh, of, of their duties today. So it turns out that making bad decisions gets you a day off as well by the looks of it. Look, for me, something really, really needs to be done. But where I think we're going wrong as, as football fans, generally speaking, is that we're always pointing the finger at VAR as a concept and VAR as a uh, as this, this entity, whatever VAR is. It's nothing to do with the technology. Having the technology to hand gives you a greater chance of achieving the right decision. The problem is the people that are running it, the people that are tasked with carrying these decisions out are just not good enough for the jobs. And I read reports last week that the Saudi Pro League are looking to pinch some of the Premier League's referees. You can have them. You can take them. You can take them all for free because they are killing our game um, week after week after week. But anyway, um, that's enough on that. Let's take a couple of questions from you guys uh, before I sign out. Uh, give me... Um, some uh, questions via the chat box uh, if you'd like to. I've got a couple favorited already, uh, which I'll work through now, and I'll give you guys a chance to get in a couple more uh, as well before we wrap up. Just a quick reminder, if you haven't done so already, uh, please leave a like on the video. There's loads and loads of you watching at the moment. There's no reason why we shouldn't have at least a couple of hundred likes on the board. Uh, so please like, subscribe as well if you're brand spanking new uh, as we work our way uh, towards the next milestone. If you're listening on audio as well, please uh, do leave us a review as well. That really, really does help. Right. Uh, let's take your questions right after this. OK, um, Mark says, Harry, do you think Arteta should be making substitutions after the third goal on 53 minutes instead of risking injuries? to our core players. Um, he waited until the 69th minute to make uh, the first double change, which saw uh, Nketiah and Zinchenko come off and Nelson and Tommy Asu came on. Um, yeah, possibly. Um, you know, I, I think you can make that case. I didn't really take too much issue with it and I don't really ever take too much issue with that type of thing unless it leads to someone picking up an injury. I think, you know, it is the Premier League. I think there will always be an element of you know, having that in the back of your mind. But also, I think the way I read Mikel Arteta and, and the way I sort of read his management style, it's about maintaining levels all the time. And it's about even when you're three, four nil up, still performing in the same way, playing in the same way, not allowing the standards to drop. And I think that's probably why he uh, delayed it a little bit longer. He then made a change on 76. Um, 
it was an enforced change by the looks of it because Saka picked up a knock, who, by the way, I haven't touched on this yet, can't believe it, but by the way, uh, I'm told just literally got a knock and, and he's okay. Um, he made that change and then, he, of course, he made another double change taking off Rice and Havertz uh, on 81 minutes. So I think it's just about him wanting to keep that standard high um, and, you know, there will be an element of risk to that with regards to the possibility of people picking up injuries and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, it, it's a valid point that you make, but I think that's probably the reason, the reason I've explained why he doesn't do it um, earlier. Uh, Arsenal Adventure says, Harry, did you see our build-up? 4-2-4 plus one with Raya covering as a left centre-back and Gabriel at left-back, which helps Zinchenko to be more free. I think this is the difference between him and Ramsdale. That's a really, really good observation. And it's one that I talked about during my commentary, I, I, I mentioned, I think, one or two times throughout the 90 minutes that David Raya was sitting in the left centre-back position. Um, yeah, perhaps that is one of the differences that Mikel Arteta sees. Um, you, you could be onto something there. That could be a big part of why David Raya seems to be getting the nod in the Premier League games ahead of Aaron Ramsdale at this moment in time. Um, I thought Aaron Ramsdale was great at Brentford, though, the other night as well, which means that Mikel Arteta has got a decision to be making uh, moving forward. But perhaps it's a more um, suited fit to what Arteta ultimately wants to achieve. And that's why David Raya uh, is is where he is. Um, let's take a few more questions. Uh, Essen says, Harry, people were complaining about Arteta not bringing Saka off early again. Why do you think he keeps him on longer? I think it goes back to the point I was making before about the standards um, and him wanting to maintain those standards for as much of the game as he possibly can. He doesn't want um, the level to drop. He doesn't want that level uh, to subside in any way, shape or form. And, um, and also, you know, yes, he could make a change and he did make a change in the end. He brought uh, Fabio Vieira on to play on that right-hand side. But I also think the fact that we don't have a natural alternative to Vakayo Saka on that right flank is is a part of why he plays so much football as well. Um, you know, Arteta obviously thinks he can handle it. He said in his pre-match press conference that uh, Saka is experienced enough now to know his own body and to know when he can contribute and when he can't. Uh, Finn Muller, this is a really interesting one, staying on this topic of Saka, says, I know he scores goals but I don't think Saka is at the same level as last season. What's your take on this? I I agree with you. Um, I think that he's not taking on players as easily. He's not as involved in our build-up as much as he was last season. He hasn't ever looked 100% fit at the start of this season for me as well, which is uh, a little bit frustrating. But I agree with what you're saying. But I also think you have to take into consideration here that teams know now that Bukayo Saka is the main man. There is much more focus on trying to mute him than there probably ever has been in his career. So that's something he's going to have to deal with. And if that can then create additional space for others because the focus is on him and we still benefit from it, then that's fine as well. Uh, I think we have to understand the, the the context around that. But I do agree with you that he is less involved in games, generally speaking, than he probably was at his peak last season. Let's take uh, this final one uh, from Christoph as well. Uh, is Mikel Arteta playing Jesus and Eddie together because Reese isn't fit enough to start and play 70 plus minutes? We need to count on the starters going deep effectively with these extended extra time minutes. Could be could be some validity to that point. Um, I think Mikel Arteta didn't want to take Eddie out of the side just straight away when Jesus returned because he felt that Eddie had, had done really, really well during the time that he was the focal point, that he was the main man. And um, 
Mikel Arteta wants to create a meritocracy. He wants people to be rewarded for good performances. And although in the last couple, so Spurs and Bournemouth, I didn't think Eddie was as effective as he can be. Clearly, he's still working really, really hard. Clearly, he's still ticking all the boxes that Mikel Arteta is wanting ticked. And therefore, I think there's a reluctance on Mikel Arteta's part to take him out of the side and replace him with someone like Reese Nelson, who he probably feels still has more to prove. Um, so that's kind of how I see that. But um, yeah, really, really interesting question. Guys, um, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, thank you so, so much for tuning in. As always, remember, if you haven't done so already, please leave a like on the video. It really, really does help. I can see we've only got about 100 likes on the board, which is nowhere near good enough when you look at how many of you are watching. We should have at least, at the very minimum, 200 likes on the board. So please um, help me out with that. Subscribe to the channel if your brand's spanking new. And uh, I think I'll leave you with the Kai Havertz chant rather uh, than the traditional outro. Enjoy, and I'll see you all tomorrow with more. Until then, take care. <laughs>